I'm going to do an introduction for our speaker. Uh, it's just such a joy to be able to introduce our speaker, Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Um, his wife, Caroline, is with us, and you'll be able to hear, the ladies will be able to hear from her tomorrow night as well. We'll have split sessions, guys and, and girls. And the reason I'm so excited and joyful about having these speakers here today is because they've meant so much to my life over 26 years, I believe it is. And I met Jim when I was in seminary, at the Master's Seminary. He was down south in Escondido, California. And we had a mutual friend that went to his church. And so we kind of met through this friend, and this friend was going to Westminster Theological Seminary. And over the years, uh, I have found Jim as somebody that I could go to as a friend and as a counselor. And he's helped me through many situations. I've been able to um, just run some counseling situations by him. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that we are taught to do, right, to uh, seek the wisdom of many counselors. And that has always been helpful, and I'm very thankful for that. We've had a very sweet relationship. And I also want to give you a little bit of the more formal introduction. Uh, he's the director of Christian Counseling and associate professor of practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He's also a fellow of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and a board member of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. But probably, uh, in my mind, more prominently, he, is, he has been a pastor for many years and a shepherd of his family and also his church. So, Dr. Jim, why don't you come on up here and uh, bring the word to us. is some pulpit. I've, uh... It is a great joy to be with you all. I think one of the joys, I don't know if it's been 26 years or exactly how many, but just see God's faithfulness. The brother and sister in Christ with Brian and Myra and how you know, we've both been different places doing different things, but we've had friends who have not continued the course for those 26 years, and it's a great joy to see fruitful serving God, walking with Him, and uh, we're thankful for that. And it's a privilege to be here. I actually, when people saw, I had two people when they saw that uh, your church was on my schedule get all excited. Uh, I don't know if you know Josh Clutterham, but his wife Meredith, I guess she said she was first discipled in this church, and uh, we're good friends with them, and they were excited about that. And then actually my TA at RTS was in a campus ministry doing, I think, a summer internship or something and she stayed with the family here and she says she's she and her friends have never in their life been treated better and they were just astounded that this is where Caroline and I would be this weekend so we had very high expectations which so far have been met um, before I continue let me pray father in heaven you are good and gracious to us you've given us many gifts the best of which is Christ but you've also given us the gift of family and of marriage we confess that 
We live in a nation which has corrupted it, yet we in our own lives have not lived up to being Christ-like husbands, to being wives who are helpers. We pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to encourage us, to give us hope. We thank you for your spirit who works in us, sanctifies us, help me to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been shocking in my lifetime to see the attacks upon marriage. And early in my lifetime, there was the no-fault divorce. And then as the years went by, it became acceptable for people to live together in what we used to call fornication or living in sin. Now most people who get married were living together before, and some people never get married. And then you had the shocking Supreme Court ruling a few years back where they declared against the word of God who originated marriage that a man can be married to a man and a woman to a woman. And so our culture is in active rebellion against God who established marriage from the beginning in Genesis. And you think, well, what can we do? And there may be a place for us as Christians to engage politically, uh, but my real concern would be that I think the best way we can fight for marriage and have an impact on our culture is actually to have marriages which stand out from the culture, to have husbands and wives who are living out the gospel in relation to each other in a way that we are bright lights in a world which is very dark. One of my burdens for the church is that we can complain about the politics and what the courts do, but sometimes when you look at even the Christian marriages, they do not reflect the ideals of the Bible very well. And the question I would raise is, what can we do to preserve our marriages and to strengthen our marriages? Carolyn and I do a great deal of marriage counseling. Actually, one more yesterday. A couple have been married, I think, 17 years. Uh, they're not coming into physical contact with each other. They're fighting. They're yelling. And sometimes when a couple like that comes into the counseling office and you see them just hostile to each other, you try to think, what were they like on their wedding day? They were both excited and happy. They had high hopes of a wonderful life together. What has happened since then to make them, probably each of them, the worst enemy to the other? And can anything be done to solve this, to make this marriage what God would have it to be? And I believe the answer is yes, definitely. Actually, one of the blessings of counseling with the Word of God is God's Word is powerful and life-transforming. Psalm 19 says it enlightens the eyes, it transforms, it revives the heart. There, There is hope in the Word of God. And actually, the way this message came about is I was asked to speak at a conference where I'd spoken so many times, I'd given all my standard marriage talks. And I was supposed to come up with something new, because I usually go through Genesis and Ephesians and things like that. And so what I came up with would be after what has now been about 35 years of marriage counseling, and Caroline and I just celebrated our 40th year of marriage in September, what are some of the most important things I have learned for people who want to preserve their marriage and to strengthen their marriage? And I have six L's, and I want you to know that you are a blessed group, because in my entire life, unlike John MacArthur, who does it every week, I've only used alliteration twice. This is one of the two. Um, but what can be done to protect and preserve our marriages? And 
The first L is that the Lord must come first. Your walk with the Lord must be your very first priority. When we have couples come in who are having problems with each other, we will often ask each of them individually how they are doing in their own walk with Jesus. And almost invariably, they will tell you, well, you know, I've really not been in the Word much lately. I've not been praying lately. And there's almost 100% correlation between a lack of a vibrant spiritual life and a marriage which is failing. Peter says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Uh, We in marriage need the grace of God. We in marriage need great strength. We need to be strengthened by the Word of God through the Spirit of God so we can love somebody who is a sinner, the person we married, and that we as sinners can be sanctified. I think one of the problems that the world and some Christians have with marriage, and I'm, I'm really so happy we have so many single people here, is there are many people who look at marriage as what will fill their love tank. And there's actually books on counseling that talk about learning to fill your spouse's love tank. Well, friends, no one other than Jesus is going to ultimately fill your love tank. And and if you're looking for your spouse to make your life meaningful and fulfilling, uh, you are going to be disappointed. And there are many people, and they're having a hard time in marriage, and they think, well, I can never be happy unless my spouse changes. And of course, that's why many people will get divorced, because the spouse doesn't change. But if something is wrong in your marriage, the place to begin is not even addressing your relationship with your spouse, but to address your relationship with the Lord. And if things are really hard, then more than ever in your life, you need your relationship with the Lord to be growing. And we will come back to this on the last L as well. Along with this, in terms of your relationship with the Lord, it's very important to be involved in a strong church. Hebrews 10, 24 says we should stimulate or even provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as is the habit of some. God has made his church the instrument by which his people are fed, discipled, and cared for. There are the, the reformed called the public means of grace. As we worship God together, we pray together, the word of God is read and proclaimed to us. The scripture says that God himself is speaking to us through the word proclaimed in the church. God strengthens his people through that. We, we need that. And the neglect of gathering with the people of God is going to be the, the detriment both of your soul and of your marriage. It's in the church, and I love the direction this church is taking in terms of discipleship. Nothing is better for a marriage than for both husband and wife to be disciples of Christ in growing in that relationship, and growing in their knowledge of God, and growing in their sanctification, and growing in their service to God. And if if you have a husband and wife who are working in that direction in their relationship with the Lord, it is going to draw them together within the marriage. You also need to work on your, you also desperately need the church because if trouble comes, you need the help that only the church can supply. Hebrews 13, 17 says we should respect our leaders who have watch over our souls and we should respect them in a way that would cause them joy and not grief as they carry out that service. Uh, when, when marriages have trouble, uh, you need godly men who can step in and offer that help. You also need Titus 2 women 
who can help the younger women and, and people in troubled marriages. And I've seen people who have been in a strong church and when a crisis has come in marriage and there's been unfaithfulness or there's been deceit or there's been disappointment uh, or there's a financial crisis or there's just sharp disagreement and then say, I, I don't know what we would have done unless we'd been in this church where there was leadership committed to caring for our souls. You know, many people today pick a church because they like the music or they have Krispy Kreme or whatever the reasons may be, or their kids like the kids program. And those are all tertiary biblically. You need a church where the word is proclaimed and where you have shepherds who will watch over the souls and people who will counsel from the word of God when there is trouble. Actually, I have done a lot of counseling ministry. I ran a counseling center in California that accepted people from outside our local church. And I would say the great majority of the cases we found, 80% of the solution was that these people would get into a good church where they would be shepherded, where the word of God would be preached. Some of them were attending and not committed. And so you know, in our relationship with the Lord, both our personal walk, but also then our public relationship with the body. And then quite frankly, when things get really hard in marriage, uh, even the threat or the actions of church discipline to do what is necessary to try to restore an erring spouse. And there are many people, when they face a crisis, they are spiritually homeless, and there's no one who has a voice uh, to speak with authority into the lives of the couple, and that puts them in a terrible place. So if you want your marriage to be strengthened, the first is to strengthen your relationship with the Lord, both personally, but also through the public a means of grace in the church and being in a church where you will be faithfully shepherded by godly men and where there are also godly women who will carry out what Titus 2 says. Now to the second L. And for this one, I'll give you a little story that a few years ago, I was allowed the privilege to preach or to conduct the wedding, including preaching the sermon. I guess the pastor just thinks about preaching at a wedding. He doesn't think about the other parts. But uh, anyway, for my, our nephew and his fiance, and I chose a, a text for my sermon that is, it occurred to me later, probably in 2,000 years of church history, I was the first person ever to use this text for a wedding. And maybe your pastors here will see what a great text it is, and they'll use it someday. But here's the text I chose. It's Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 30. He says, I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with metals, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it, and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come in as a robber, and your want like an armed man. My second L is a warning against laziness. It goes back, and actually... It goes back to the wedding day. The wedding day was like you had a field that was, was plowed and there were crops all lined up real neat. There was a red barn standing up straight. Oftentimes it starts out really well. But I, we've moved to North Carolina from Southern California. There are farms all over the place. Most of them you drive by looks pretty good. But you'll go by some farms and the thorns and the weeds and the thistles are taking over. The kind of the remnants of last year's crop is trying to grow again. The barn is turning gray. The paint is peeling. The barn is bending over. And it didn't happen all of a sudden, right? It happened over time. Uh, that which was really good with neglect because of uh, entropy, because of the second law of thermodynamics, it's going to deteriorate. And that is exactly what happens in marriage. 
Uh, about a year ago, Carolyn and I received a call that we would be asked to counsel a pastor and his wife in our region. And the pastor actually wrote me a multi-page account of their marriage. And then as they came in, uh, you, you have a marriage in which the wife was continually nagging the husband and belittling him. And the husband was engaging in horrible outbursts of anger, saying things that no man, much less a pastor, should say. And I began the counseling session by making the pastor read this text. And as he finished the text, I know exactly what you're getting at. This is our marriage. We started out serving the Lord together. We started out happy together. We've neglected the marriage. and Now the weeds have taken over. Now I have good news. God has done an amazing work in this couple. God, by his grace, has brought them both to repentance. Actually, in the very first session, it was actually kind of an amazing thing to see what the Word of God would do. They both thought the other one hated each other. And in the course of things, I helped the husband to see that the wife was desperately yearning for his approval. And I remember when I said that, and she said, yes, yes, yes. He says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I thought she hated me. And she also, he, she also believed that she needed to stay married to him, because, or he needed to stay in the ministry because if he got out of the ministry, he would divorce her. And he was only keeping her around because he didn't want to lose his job. He says, no, no matter what happens, I want to stay with you. And actually, one thing I really respected about the guy is there are a lot of pastors whose marriages are just as bad or worse. And they would have never exposed it to counsel. They would have kept it hidden as long as they could. And one thing that gave me hope in this case is they said, he's saying, I would rather lose my ministry and do what is right and try to save my marriage than to continue to live a lie. But it was still very sad. You see, and this is what we need to watch out for is uh, when you get married, you're all excited about each other. Actually, you go back to that when people are courting, right? You can't talk to each other enough. Caroline tells stories when we were in college and we were in a Christian college that had curfew and it's 11.30 and I'd be there right outside her dorm until 11.25 and then I would run as fast as I could to get to my dorm before they locked the door for the night and then we'd get on the phone, and back then, you, you, no cell phones. We had a long cord out in the hall, and you know, talking to each other and annoying our roommates, and we just couldn't get enough of each other. And, and there, there's some couples who, just over time, they get busy. They get busy with a career. They get busy with kids. There's not, there's not an, an attempt to attack each other or hurt each other. Uh, Paul Tripp just warns against inattention. Uh, Sometimes it can be a matter where you see a couple in a restaurant. Finally, they're together. It's date night, but what are they doing? Each is looking at their phones. They're not engaging with each other. It's usually the wife who first notices something is wrong. Things aren't right between us. There are arguments that aren't being resolved. They're, they're not close. They're not coming together like they used to. And the husband, oh, no, it's not a problem. You just worry too much. That's the way things go. Uh, do not neglect your marriage. Uh, Carolyn and I act, uh, have a lot of students stay with us. and Sometimes students will come to Charlotte and they'll come for a week to take a class and they'll stay with us while they're taking the class. And we had an event in January. We had two women who were fairly newly married and they were staying with us and they were in our kitchen and they'd been with us for a week or two already. Husbands weren't with them at this point. 
they were in town taking the class, but they wanted to talk to us. I can't remember exactly how the conversation goes, but basically what they're saying is, we're so glad to be in your house and see your marriage, because you're, like, you're really old, and it's obvious you really like each other. And, you know, Caroline jokes that she's magnetized, that if, if I'm in the room, I get drawn over in that end and grab her. And uh, but she says, our parents are about your age, and they're still married but I don't see they like each other very much. They're just kind of living two separate lives in the same house. That's what happens in a lot of Christian marriages. Is it's, it's not just the ones that end in divorce. It's the ones that just aren't happening even though they remain married. Uh, we need to be working throughout our marriage to build closeness, to court each other, to date each other. And then as we think about the field that's full of the thorns and the thistles, a lot of those, I would say, would represent unresolved conflict. And probably some of you have been trained in biblical peacemaking, and I don't have time to go through it in detail, but just to summarize that you need to pull the weeds and you need to plant the flowers or the crops or whatever you want to grow in your garden. And conflict can be very dangerous. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down in your anger, lest... You give the devil an opportunity. And when problems aren't solved, and what often happens in many marriages, there's a conflict, and just over time, you're not as hot anymore, and so you kind of calm down, but the conflict was never resolved. And so there are seeds of the thorns and the thistles that are sown in your garden, and over time, your garden gets overrun. Uh, Paul's warning is vivid, and and there are some marriages and people come in for counseling and it's like they've just got almost nothing but thorns and thistles because they've not really dealt with their messy garden, their messy field in years. And there, there's hope in the gospel through a process. Jesus says in Matthew 7, get the log out of your own eye to uh, deal with your own sin and confess your sin to each other, not just to, you know, let time pass, but to acknowledge your sin. And some of you have been through the peacemaker material where the seven A's of confession. Some people, I would say, mow the weeds, if you know what I mean. Well, I'm sorry, it's okay. Never really dealing with the depths of problems, but talking things through. It can be a lot of effort. If a, you know, Like this couple I mentioned, this pastor and his wife, their field had gone four or five years without a, a mowing, much less pulling the weeds. And uh, there has been a lot of effort in pulling the weeds and the thorn bushes over time, but it's only then that the flowers can grow. So to be quick, again, get the log out of your own eye. Confess your own faults. Humble yourself before God. Seek his forgiveness. Seek her forgiveness. In Matthew 5, Jesus said in verse 23 that if your brother has something against you and you're on your way to make your offering, first be reconciled to your brother, then your offering can take place. As important as it is to worship God, it's more important to be united with your brother. How much more with your spouse to resolve these issues? Along with that just would be, don't be quarrelsome. There's so much in Proverbs about that. Abandon the quarrel. Uh, so many, again, in marriage counseling, you'll just see people sniping each other and uh, fussing with each other. There are again, a lot of us in the Proverbs about that, to repent of being quarrelsome. And then the Bible also describes how, in order to resolve the problems, Jesus said, after you get the log out of your own eye, then what should you do? Then you can take the speck or the splinter out of your brother's eye. 
Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you will not be tempted. Uh, if there's something wrong in your marriage, again, first you deal with your own sin, but then part of being a helper to your husband, wife, part of loving your wife and washing her with the word is to be instruments in one another's, in one another's sanctification, to help each other to grow, or if there's an unresolved conflict between you, to restore one another, not to attack, and I've got you now, I scored a point because I caught you in this sin, but saying, I'm coming alongside of you. The, the word in Galatians 6.1 for restore, uh, the Greek word is used elsewhere of like fishermen mending nets, that we're here to help each other. So let's, you know, let, let's pull the weeds, let's deal with these issues, to forgive, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ has also forgiven you. We as Christians, as we bring the gospel into our marriages, are able to forgive. That's so much of this process of, of pulling the weeds. And I would add, if you get stuck, get help. That's what counseling is. Go to your elders. Go to counselors in your congregation. And if you as a couple realize we've got a whole bunch of weeds and thorn bushes and we're not even sure how to pull them, there are people here who are equipped to help you do that. Don't be lazy. Don't let the thorn bushes ruin the blessing that God would have for you within the marriage. And then once the, the, the garden has been weeded, then plant the flowers. You're not, we're not, we didn't get married just to have a bunch of bare dirt. We got married to bring each other joy and to be a blessing to one another, to draw each other closer to the Lord, to spend time together daily, to, to talk, to share life together. Uh, one of my favorite marriage verses is in the context of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. And he says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life he has given you under the sun. This is your reward in life and your toil with which you have labored under the sun. Ecclesiastes, if, if you're not aware of that, is not the most optimistic book in the entire Bible about life on this earth. But what he's saying is God in, in the midst of your toil and your labor and the frustration of life, he's given marriage as something that God wants you to bring each other joy as friends and companions to share life together. And, and so don't, don't be satisfied with less. You're not neglecting important things if you're investing in your marriage and, and, and spending time communicating and going out together and uh, spending quality time together. So we've seen the Lord comes first, but then second of all, that laziness will cause your marriage to gradually deteriorate like the sluggard's field. And that means that Every year in your marriage, you should be investing more in each other. You're, you're not neglecting important things to take care of each other, even for the sake of your children. The best thing you can do for your kids is to have a marriage where they would look and say, yes, that's what I want someday. When, when I get to be an adult, I don't need to shack up with somebody like in the movies. That's not where it's at. Where it's at is what my parents have. They seem to really enjoy life. They, they can see the garden. And they would like one like it someday. And there's a third L, and that is that lies are like a deadly cancer in a marriage relationship. And this is also in Ephesians 4, verse 25, where Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Almost nothing in marriage is more important than mutual trust. In the, in the course of our marriage counseling, Carolyn and I have had to counsel in many cases of adultery. And these are hard. These are heartbreaking. But I can also tell you that the biggest issue in adultery is not sex. The biggest issue is what we often call it, unfaithfulness. And you'll often hear someone say, you know, I think I could forgive the sex, but I don't know if I can ever trust this person again. And it's the lies that need to be most of all repented of. But there are often other kinds of lies going on in marriage that aren't quite as dramatic as that. And uh, it's exaggeration, it's withholding information, it's spin. Um, Paul's illustration actually is really powerful. He says, speak truth with each, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And it's speaking in the church, but if the church is close, marriage I think is just as close or closer. And it's like you're, you and your spouse are one flesh, you're one person. And if you can't trust your spouse, it'd be like if you're out for a walk and your eyes are telling you lies. That your body's you know, walking down the road and the light says, your eyes think it's green and it thinks there are no cars there but in reality it's red and there are cars coming and you get smashed or it's like if you're jogging and every hundred paces your knee gives out and you fall on the ground and you know it'd be a horrible thing not to be able to trust part of your body but it's a horrible thing to be married to somebody you can't trust and and sadly there are some people and it's usually men, but it's not exclusively men. It's like their native language is lying. That they say what they need to say to get by in the situation, to withhold information that might get them into trouble, or to paint a picture that's better than reality to make themselves look good, uh, to maintain the peace, to say what other people want to hear so that they can enjoy the other people being happy with them for the time being. And sometimes in culture, guys like that especially can seem kind of funny in early in a relationship. But I can tell you, 10 years into marriage, it gets really tiring. Uh, there can be temptations where um, the wife is out driving, and I know at least in California they have a law that you're not allowed to talk on your cell phone in California. And I know of a wife, I won't say which one, <laughs> She's here, but I won't say who. Uh, and she was describing a situation to her husband, who was also here, saying that she was on her phone in our town, oh, in some town, and a uh, policeman pulled up to her and kind of pointed at her and gives her a ticket that would be the down payment on a car. Um, now, a wife might be tempted to try to settle that in a way the husband would not know so that she could avoid the scolding a husband might give to one's wife having violated the law this way, or at least getting caught. <laughs> I guess that's another lie, isn't it? Um, another situation occurred where a man had been struggling with looking at inappropriate things on the internet, and he and his wife agreed that he would put a filter on to keep him accountable. She was away for the weekend, and, and she gets home, and the filter has been completely disabled. And he says, I just don't know what happened. It just kind of uninstalled itself. Now, 
I don't know enough about technology to be certain that it is impossible, but I think it is extremely unlikely. What would be the better thing to do? Would it be better for him to say to his wife, you were gone, I was tempted, I fell short, all I can do is ask you to forgive me and ask God to forgive me, and I need to be more accountable. Which is the better course? Or to try to hang on to the lie. Now there's another side of that in terms of honesty in marriage, and that is we need to be the husbands when the wife comes home and says, I spent this amount of money or this financial loss has come upon us, where it is safe to tell the truth. For example, you would not be made an example of in front of over 100 people. Um, or the kind of wife that instead of erupting in anger, say, I'm so sorry, we probably need to call one of the pastors, we need to talk about this together, but I want you to know I love you and I want to help you through this struggle. So to promote honesty, not only we need to be honest, but we also need to make it safe for our spouse to admit their sins and their failings and that we're willing to show them grace. Some people have had such a lifestyle of lying, and it really fits the context in Ephesians 4, where I said, and I've known especially men, they've, they've their whole lives just said what would in the moment get them by with things and would be what people wanted to hear. It's like learning a new language to start telling the truth. I've, I've given the example to a man to say, it's like I told you for the rest of your life, you're no longer allowed to speak English, now you have to speak, whatever, Mandarin. You have to learn a new language. But that's exactly what Ephesians 4 is telling us happens when you become a Christian. It says that you put off the old self, which was enslaved to sin. You've put on a new self, which is being conformed to Christ. And so when God saves you, he does change your language from one of self-serving lying to being one who tells the truth. And there's a fourth L, and that is that lust can immediately destroy your marriage. And this is something which hits me hard. And like even as Brian and I were talking today, reminiscing over people we knew going back 27 years. There are people we knew back then who were in seminary or in pastoral ministry who are now out of the ministry because of moral failure. At that time, neither we nor they would have imagined such a thing as possible. Uh, all of you, I mean, you hear, right? When well-known Christians fall into these kinds of sin, both men and women. It is tragic, and, and we need to be very, very careful. Uh, Paul says, flee youthful lusts. I like how it says in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, don't go near her door. Uh, very few Christians plan to have an affair. But the, the world has this myth that a man and a woman who are not married to each other can just be friends without anything else developing. You can have these merely platonic relationships. Another myth the world says is that if you feel attracted to somebody, it's just this inevitable experience of falling in love. And you say, well, I didn't mean for this to happen. It just kind of happened to the two of us. And those myths are very destructive. And in counseling, in many cases of marital infidelity, you see a pattern. Actually, the pattern begins on the previous L, or two, two L's ago, where the marriage itself has been neglected, and now you have you know, a man from one marriage, a woman from the other marriage, and they're taking their kids to soccer practice. 
and they're standing by the field and they're just talking. And the kids are practicing and they're talking and, and sharing life together and, and just, you know, it doesn't start out too personally. But then, you know, they kind of notice that they're looking forward to seeing each other the next soccer practice. And, you know, she's not there next to him. She, he kind of misses her. He's, and then they text each other now and then, how you doing? And you get home okay? And, and these things build. And, and these are the steps that lead to an affair. Uh, perhaps they notice they just feel more alive when they're in the presence of that other person. And furthermore, they're getting affirmation and attention that they're not getting from their own spouse at home. At some point, a barrier is crossed where hands brush against each other when one grabs the other, or one of them confesses, I know this isn't right, but I'm starting to have feelings for you, and he's expecting to get smacked in the face, and instead she turns, well, I have these feelings towards you, and they slide into a relationship that is going to cause them and many other people a great deal of harm. A key would be that fidelity in marriage is not merely avoiding having sex with people you're not married to. It's protecting your marriage emotionally as well as physically. Don't go near her door. Genesis 2 says the two become, you're joined to your wife and the two become one flesh. And in marriage, you're not just promising not to be physically intimate with you know, only your spouse, but you're also practicing, you're also promising not to be personally and emotionally intimate with someone of the opposite sex other than your spouse. This is something even secular researchers have noticed. There was actually a study done, it was written up later in the New York Times after it was written up in a, I think a psychology magazine. And the New York Times it said the 36 questions that lead to love. And it says mutual vulnerability fosters closeness. And, and in this study, they had a man and a woman who did not know each other, did not know each other well. And they had them answer, on, you know, sit without any distractions, phone off, just looking at each other in the eye and honestly and openly answering 36 questions in the presence of each other, which I guess would take a couple of hours. Guess what happened when they talked to them afterwards? In the course of that opening up to each other, it was extremely likely that attraction would begin to develop. Of course, answer is, don't put yourself in that situation. It's dangerous. Uh, just because you're married, even if you're happily married, it doesn't mean there's some force field around you that will prevent you from being attracted to someone that God forbids you to be involved with. Um, you see so many cases, again, in the world of people working together, and uh, sometimes they even talk like work spouses, where th these people hang out, and it happens in ministry as well. And don't think it can't happen to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. Uh, I've written two little short commentaries on First and Second Samuel, spent a lot of time studying those books. And the saddest thing in those books is, is you spend a book and a half Getting to David, who's the great leader of the people of God, they desperately needed. No man ever better than David. He's the king we need. But David, the writer of these psalms, the conqueror of the Philistines, the godly man who didn't take revenge on his enemies when he could have, he falls into sexual sin. We're not better than he is. We need to be careful. When you become engaged and then married, it's an agreement to cut off all other romantic options until death parts you. 
And it's very important, I think, for husbands and wives to agree upon a protocol, propriety in dealing with the opposite sex. Uh, the Billy Graham rule. I, now that I'm in Charlotte, that's where Billy Graham is from, and his library is there. And uh, people made fun of Vice President Pence a few years ago for following the Billy Graham rule of not meeting alone with women, not being in a meal or in a car alone with a woman. And then the Me Too thing came along, and some of that criticism kind of diminished, didn't it? Um, I think it's important that you know, there's agreement. We're not going to be alone in a meal, in a car. Uh, Carolyn and I have an arrangement if we're getting emails from someone of the opposite sex, the other person is included, same thing with texts. If there's a phone conversation, we tell each other about it. Not because either of us senses that we are tempted, it's not because either of us senses that uh, we don't trust the other person, but we want to have maximum safeguards because we know we are sinners like everybody else. And then just not, not to flirt, not to discuss personal matters, especially your marriage and the troubles in your marriage with someone of the opposite sex. And then just to consider the consequences of moral failure. And, and Proverbs displays this so vividly. And just one example is in Proverbs 2 where it describes the man who goes to be with a strange woman. It says when finally he goes, he, he steps over the threshold. It says her house sinks down to death. Now we just got past what some call Halloween, others Reformation Day, but the Halloween part. It's like the house of the dead where when this man walks into her house, that house is like it sinks down to hell. Um, it can be so alluring, but so destructive. Watch over your heart, the fantasies, the imaginations that one can be guilty of, be it from pornography or romance novels or flirtation. James 1 warns that lust conceived gives birth to sin and sin results in death. We need to abort those thoughts. We need to be so careful. Well, now the next two are going to be more positive as we're on number five. And the next one is lift one another up to strengthen your marriage. And there's a fellow named Sam Crabtree who has been the executive pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. That church is famous because that was the church of John Piper for so many years. But Sam has written a book called Practicing Affirmation. I don't know if any of you have read it, but it is it in one of the book I'm going to mention towards the end have had a huge impact on me personally. And in this book, Sam's point would be that it is biblical to give God-centered affirmation to other people. And he likens affirmation to being like putting a deposit in the bank of relationships when you affirm what somebody else is doing. And then he also says, when you criticize, it's like making a withdrawal from the bank of relationship. But there's a catch, and that is that it takes several deposits to equal one withdrawal. And he has an interesting chart in the book where he describes how most romantic relationships begin with a great deal of affirmation and very little criticism, right? I mean, hey, she wants to be with me all the time. She wants to marry me. She wants to spend her life with me. I feel affirmed. And I'm telling her how great she is. And, and we're trying to get each other to spend the rest of the life together. But what typically happens in marriage over time is affirmation goes down and criticism and correction goes up. And then sometimes years into a marriage, it's almost all criticism and no affirmation. Now this ties into, some of the, this ties into the laziness. This also ties into the lust part is that why do most people have affairs? It's not merely the sex. It's the off when we've counseled in these situations, it's 
my husband thinks I'm stupid. He treats me like an idiot. Here's a man who respects me as being a smart person, an accomplished person, an attractive person. Um, we say, well, I thought we were Calvinists and we believe in total depravity. How could you affirm sinners? Well, I can do it because it's biblical to affirm sinners. Can you think of any examples in the Bible where sinners are affirmed? What's the most messed up church probably in the New Testament? Probably Corinth. But Paul begins the letter to the Corinthians by affirming what God is doing in them before he starts correcting them for what they've done wrong. You think of Proverbs 31, and this relates directly to marriage, right? Her husband rises up and blesses her, says, Many women have done well, but you surpass them all. Arm is deceitful, beauty is vain, a woman fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Uh, there are other examples where Jesus praises the faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, when the woman uh, washed his feet uh, with her tears, and he says, she has done well, she has done the right thing, pouring out the ointment upon him. And so it's biblical, and the way Crabtree puts it is, is in a God-centered way, is that when we affirm people and we do so from a biblical mindset, we're really giving thanks to God for his work in them. Every good gift comes from above. Every good gift comes from God. And, and for a believer, it's the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit has produced in them. And, and to recognize that and to affirm that is a good God-honoring thing to do. And, and you can do it by saying, I thank God that he made you an honest person or a helpful person. I don't think you always have to say, I thank God. I think you can mean, I thank God. But to make a practice of, of affirming and uh, there, there are many husbands who kind of operate by what I call management by exception. If it's right, we say nothing, and if it's wrong, we fix it. And that does not promote closeness in marriage. Um, many wives come to seminars like this, and they hear all the great things husbands should do. And they have extremely high expectations of their husbands. And when they're not receiving all that they expected after listening to the seminar or reading the book they become very critical of their husband not measuring up to the super spiritual leader they thought they were going to marry. And then the sad thing is, and again, this is what makes you vulnerable to giving up on marriage or even vulnerable to another relationship. It's like, well, I can never please this person. I can never satisfy this person. And that can make you hopeless or it can, make, can, can be dangerous. And so what do you do? Well, an assignment we often give to couples we are counseling, and something we've done it in the counseling room is, Instead of telling me what's wrong with your spouse, I want you to say three things that you can affirm about your spouse, three things you can see that God is doing in them you appreciate. Well, uh, she's a good mother. She takes really great care of the house. She cooks really healthy food, very faithfully. I'm very thankful for those things. I never knew you thought that. And sometimes the temperature in the room can change when they move away from tearing each other down and you know, Galatians 5 says, if you devour each other, be careful you're not consumed by one another. Uh, the Bible affirms even flawed people. Another example is the Revelation letters in, in chapter 2 and 3. Jesus affirms most of those churches, even though most of them also needed to be corrected. So to affirm your spouse is to give God glory for his work in your spouse. And that's a good thing. And a couple of addendums to that will... What if your spouse isn't a believer? And actually, one place this is a really big deal for me is with kids, okay? It's not just for your spouse. It's for your children, especially your young adult children, your teenagers. 
they know what you think is wrong with them. <laughs> but how often do you affirm them? And I realize sometimes it's, you, it's harder to find the affirmable things. But we need to be looking for it. We need to be, I actually, like, you know, people go on the beach with a metal detector. They're trying to find gold or coins or something. You need to be an affirmation detector, looking for what can be affirmed. I have a memory, now it's been several years ago, my son, who was probably in his early 20s, still living with us. And it was not long, I think, after I read this book. And so I, w- I was making some effort, and I said, well, boy, I really appreciate, I don't know what it's like, how hardworking you are, how diligent and resilient you are. And the next thing I knew on Facebook, it says, my dad, Jim Neuheiser, just said this about me. And he posts what I said, and it made me realize I've really been behind at this for a long time. Affirmation is very powerful. You say, well, what if your spouse or your child is not a believer? It's something called common grace, that God restrains sin even in the lost, and God brings common grace good even in the lost. I can thank God for the honesty, the hard work, the kindness that he shows to his mother, different things. I can still give affirmation in my mind that something God is giving me through him, even if he's not doing it for the glory of God. And so I think lifting up your spouse through affirming what can be affirmed and say, well, what if there are all these things wrong? Well, look for something. I've actually, you know, some spouses are so negative in the midst of conflict. I go, this is so hard to find something. I say, well, if, if they sent a probe up to the moon and they found like one blade of grass growing on the moon, would they get excited about that? They sure would, okay? I want you to look for that blade of grass on the dark side of the moon. Look for anything, and then don't make it up, don't flatter, that's not right, but look for what you can affirm. And I think the reality is in most marriages, there are many, many reasons. I do this a lot in counseling as well, even thinking of yesterday with this couple who came in so hopeless, so unhappy, saying, I thank God that as believers, you know that what God has joined, let no man separate, and that you've stuck with it, even though you're getting nothing out of this marriage right now. And I thank God that you're coming for help and you have hope that the word of God can do what you've so far failed to do. Uh, People are desperate for affirmation. Your spouse may be desperate for affirmation. Affirmation is biblical. One of the warning though, don't do a criticism sandwich. (laughs) Or if every time you say, let me tell you these good things about you, and then the other shoe drops, now that was all just to set up the criticism, it won't work anymore. Uh, so, one more. Can you remember the one so far? The Lord comes first. Laziness is going to just cause things to deteriorate like the sluggard's field. Lies are like a cancer. Lust will just immediately bring destruction. Instead, lift each other up. And then the final one is to learn to love your spouse as God has loved you in Christ. Both the Old and the New Testaments portray uh, the marriage relationship that we have as being like God's relationship with us. Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And as we look even at the structure of Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters of Ephesians telling us about God's love for us. In the first chapter, the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, the Spirit has sealed us. The second chapter, we were dead in sin, 
But God made us alive together with Christ, saved us by grace through faith unto good works. We who were far away have been brought near. And at the end of chapter 3, he actually prays. He says, oh, that you would grasp the love of Christ. And then when he gets to chapters 4 to 6, which people talk about the practical part, that's how we can say, like in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If a husband is failing to care for his wife in a loving way, the answer is not just to give him a to-do list and say, okay, we'll, you know, every other week buy her flowers or candy and make a date every two weeks to take her out to her favorite restaurant. You just, you know, follow this list and it'll all be fine. What needs to happen is a heart change. You won't be able to sustain the discipline of a list if your heart isn't in it. If a man is not loving his wife in a Christ-like way, it's because he has not really fully grasped the love of Christ for him. When it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, it's as he thinks upon the love of Christ, as he marvels at the love of Christ, as he's thrilled by the love of Christ, that, back to point one, it fills his love tank. It, it gives him a love to share with someone who doesn't always deserve it. When we meet with couples who are struggling, one of the assignments we give them is to pray Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And it's, it's the wrap-up of the first half of the book. And the prayer is essentially, in Luke verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then comes the famous part, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is it, what, if my marriage is failing, what do I need? I need personally to know more of the love of Christ. As I would know that love, and that's why I say pray that God will give you a grasp of that love, that you'll be able to, to love your wife, your husband, based upon grace. There's so many marriages in which there's what I would call a gospel disconnect. And that is that if you were to ask the spouse, you know, the husband, how are you saved? Well, I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus. He, he has his catechism down. He's got some verses memorized. He understands the facts of the gospel. But then how does he treat his wife? Well, he treats her according to the law. He, he deals with her in terms of, well, if she treats me well, I treat her well. If she treats me badly, I treat her badly. That's the way most human relationships are governed, is I will give you what you deserve. That's the world's approach to marriage. And, and that's why so many marriages are, are so poor. And even in Christian marriages, the people who intellectually understand the gospel are not reflecting the gospel in their marriage in spite of all that Ephesians is saying, even the forgiveness aspect, you know, forgive as you've been forgiven, thinking of the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, Titus says, Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, he has saved us not based on deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, I mentioned that Sam Crabtree's book, 
uh, on practicing affirmation has had a, a big impact on me and my family and my counseling. The other book that's had a huge impact on me is Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do. And the premise of the book actually begins with 1 Timothy 1.15 is a trustworthy statement worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Most people in marriage conflict think they married the chief of sinners and that they're very righteous. And things will be turned around when you realize the biggest sinner you know is you. The biggest threat to your marriage and it flourishing is you. And that should humble you. And yes, he also says, yes, you're a sinner married to a sinner. And, and so if your spouse sins, you shouldn't go, wow, I can't believe she did that. No, she's a sinner like I'm a sinner. But what should we who have received such grace do for each other? If I'm the, the servant who's been forgiven the 10,000 talent, billions and billions of dollar debt, and my sister, my brother owes me 100 denarii, what should I do but show grace to them as I have received grace? And the more you understand that grace and the more you delight in that grace, the more you'll be able to give that grace to somebody else. And you know, so many people, they look at marriage, well, I want to be loved, and, and I want you to be loved. But the great goal and the great privilege of marriage is, and, and what I would want my goal to be is, I want to be a man of grace, I want it to be that my wife, as she sees how I treat her, would say, I, I think I'm being treated better than, better than I deserve. I think my husband loves me as Christ loves me. That It gives me some idea that I can honestly say that's what I'm getting in marriage by the grace of God through Caroline, is that this shows me what God's love is. And, and to, to accomplish this, Again, it goes back to the first. Is you, you need to be walking with the Lord. You need to be grasping his love and appreciating his love as you're, as you're fighting the battle in your own soul. Galatians says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But he says, the flesh and the Spirit are at war with each other. But the battle in your marriage is the great battle is not even with each other. It's the battle in your own walk with God to, to be able to show love when it's not always deserved, to show grace in the midst of sadness and disappointment, but as you're walking with the Lord, then you can bear the fruit of the Spirit, even if the other person tempts you or provokes you. Uh, the, the love of God enables you to endure because you've made a, a covenant and you're reflecting God's faithfulness and your love for each other. One of my favorite phrases out of um, Tim Keller's book on marriage is a quote where it says, it has been said you don't just marry one person, that is the man or the woman who stood at the altar with you, you marry several people. You get it? The one that is your spouse will become, you know, whatever your spouse will become through many phases of your life together. That's what the covenant of marriage is. is you're, you're saying not, I, I marry you based on you changing the way I expect you to change or staying the same the way I want you to stay the same, but it's, I choose to love you not just the you of the, the young bride, but the you who becomes the young mother and the you who becomes the middle-aged matron and the you who becomes the grandmother. Uh, I've been married to several Carolines in 40 years. I've been blessed that each one has been a little better than the last one. But marriage is this commitment that this, you're the one that God has given me in covenant. And then God's covenant love for us which is an everlasting, unbreakable love, is a picture of how we love each other. 
So it's, it's a love that delights in bringing joy to the other person. It's a love that delights in, in giving. Christ has given to us. So there's hope. There's hope because he who began a good work and you will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's hope because God, even more than you do, wants your marriage to be a reflection of his relationship with his people. There's hope because you're not still of the world. You've been made a new person in Christ and you can live in a new way as you walk by his spirit. And as I've gone through these uh, six things, I'm going to give you more chance to see if we can remember them. There's hope. And, and I've, I've seen this. I've had the privilege of watching God work in ways beyond what I could imagine in my own thinking as through the word of God, by the grace of God, and marriages that are grounded in the gospel, marriages are transformed. As, as a husband and a wife, they put the Lord first even more than each other in walking with him in the church and personally. As they... Learn by the grace of God not to be lazy, but to continually invest in their relationship and to pull the weeds. Even after you've pulled a bunch of weeds, weeds grow back and you keep pulling weeds. You hate weeds. You love flowers. You keep pulling the weeds and planting the flowers and you don't rest. That you learn to speak the truth in love and to trust God, to be honest. Even sometimes it's dangerous. It's you guard your heart, you guard your relationships to protect the purity of your marriage from lust. That you learn to affirm each other. You practice affirmation. You, and I, I could give you that as assignment tonight. Tonight, before you go to bed, affirm at least three things about your spouse. Not hard to do. Shouldn't be hard to do. And then we grow in the knowledge of the love of God. Is we love because he first loved us. That the love of God for us is so great, so gracious, and so powerful that even if one person in a marriage is committing to this, the marriage can be wonderfully transformed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the gospel. A gospel which is glorious and gracious. You have so loved us. What an amazing thing it is that Christ came to die for us, die for his bride, to make us your people, though we don't deserve it. And even now, you continually forgive and show grace to us. Lord, help us in our marriages to reflect this love and this grace. You know each one here you know the homes in which things from the outside may look okay, and yet in the inside they're not good. Help them to turn to you tonight and seek help. And those of us who are blessed, help us to grow closer and closer as you help us to show this love. Help us not to be satisfied with mediocrity in our marriages. But help us to grow in love to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.